The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, here am I send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. So in case you're relatively new to Christ Presbyterian Church, uh, we have three locations, and every now and then, um, three different lead pastors, Stacy, uh, Russ Ramsey, and I, uh, Russ is over in Cool Springs, I'm off of Old Hickory Boulevard, we'll We'll come in and, and uh, relief pitch for each other. So I'm doing that. Uh, you, get, you get your pastor back uh, next week. Uh, this was his choice, by the way. So if you uh, are not happy about him preaching on his first Sunday back, uh, blame him, not me. Um, but uh, it's great to be here. Uh, and uh, we are in our summer series on Isaiah. And, um, and today we're, we're looking at the prophet's call. And... Um, I'll start 
with this. You and I ought to be concerned about our own spiritual condition if we are more alarmed with the sin, dysfunction, ugly stuff in somebody else than we are alarmed at those same things in ourselves. I can remember one time uh, our family, we have two daughters, my wife and I have two daughters, they're four years apart, and our family was eating dinner together. Before we ate dinner, um, I, I prayed, uh, gave thanks for the meal. While I was giving thanks for the meal, leading the family in prayer, one of our daughters said, Dad, her eyes are open, you know, pointing to her sister. And I said, well, first of all, who made it a rule that you have to close your eyes while you're praying? That's not our rule. I'm not, I don't think that's a rule that God has. So what's the problem if that is the case? And second of all, how do you know? <laughs> See, we can get caught up in um, you know, what you could call maybe the, 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 the specs and logs reversal, right? Jesus said, um, you know, before you remove a little speck out of somebody else's eye, take the log out of your own. Uh, and uh, our daughter in that moment had maybe a little speck in her eye, according to her, and, and the logs were in, in other people's eyes. You're in spiritual danger. If, if that's sort of the normal way you interact with... Um, the question, what's the biggest problem in the world? If your answer to that question is not, I'm the biggest problem in the world, you're in danger spiritually. And you'll also injure people along the way. And you'll also have a pretty anemic spiritual life with God because God doesn't really cohabit well with pride. Okay? So, the adult version of what happened around our dinner table is what you call the grumpy saint. It's this pattern of finding fault in others. But, but if you try to correct that person of anything, instead of humbly receiving it and considering what you say, they'll get prickly and defensive. So those are signs that you might be in spiritual danger. Uh, second, it's a sure sign that God loves you if you can identify at least a season, maybe several seasons in your life where God has led you from that place to a better place, where the logs and specks have been put in their right order, where, you know, like Isaiah, um, you, you say, woe is me! Oh, and by the way, I live among a people of unclean lips too, rather than woe is everybody else, and oh, by the way, I'm a sinner because my theology says so, right? So, a sign of health, a sign that God loves you is that he has led you to that place where you're most concerned about you, and you're most alarmed about you rather than alarmed about everybody else. And sometimes God has to shake the foundations of everything, in order to get us to that place of, of humility. And that happens here. Uh, there's a national crisis because this, this is written, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So Uzziah was, was this great king. 
Uh, and under Uzziah's reign, and it was a long reign, Israel enjoyed uh, unparalleled prosperity and flourishing as a nation economically, militarily, and etc. And then he dies, and his death is sort of the representation of, of the end of a golden era for them, and so they're all in crisis. And in a smaller way, God creates the same experience for Isaiah the prophet by simply giving him a vision of himself. This uh, in front of us is what you could call a transforming encounter with God. And if you have an encounter with God, you will be transformed. You will be transformed. And and what what I'd like to do today is, is identify a handful of the marks of what it means to have one of those uh, uh, transforming encounters. The first is that your foundations will be shaken. The second is that you'll receive a healing touch. And then finally, you will become an eager uh, 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 surrenderer, an enthusiastic surrenderer to, to God and to his purposes in your life. And so let's talk about foundations being shaken first. So Isaiah, the prophet says, he's kind of writing his own story. He says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, and the foundations of everything shook. And I cried, woe is me, I'm unclean. One glimpse of God, he's telling us, and then that which was once beautiful to you will seem hideous, that which was once strong to you in your eyes will seem weak, that which uh, was once big to you will seem very small. Even the seraphs, and the seraphs are angels, uh, they're a specific kind of angel. They have six wings, which means they're very strong, and uh, the word seraph means a fiery one, and so, so they were radiant. They, they, were, uh, they were gorgeous. They had superhuman powers, and it says that even them, about, even about them, they, they, that they covered their feet and they covered their faces. Now, what, what, do you do, what are you doing when you're covering your face, when you're covering your eyes, when you're breaking eye contact? That you're, you're responding to the shame of being looked at. So the French philosopher uh, Jean-Paul Sartre once said that hell is to be looked at. It's this book, Being in Nothingness, there's a whole chapter in there called The Look. Hell, the very worst experience in the world, Sartre is saying, is to be looked at. I mean, you understand that, when you, that uncomfortable eye contact, and you, and you break it because of a, a sense of embarrassment, a sense of feeling shame. That's what, that's what perfect angels are doing when they get a glimpse of who God is, this holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts that Isaiah describes. And Isaiah is also knocked off of his center. I saw the Lord, and, and immediately my impulse was to say, woe is me, I'm lost, I have unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips. This is the most devout man in Israel. There's nobody in Israel at this time who's more devout than Isaiah, and yet even he is suddenly undone by how corrupt he is in comparison to his maker. Now, it's really significant, too, that Isaiah targets his lips because for a prophet, for a preacher, your lips are the thing that you boast about, that you look to to, to sort of 
Um, it's what you do, right? Uh, it, it validates you. It gives you this sense of, I'm okay because, in Isaiah's case, I'm a good preacher. And he really was incredibly eloquent. If you've ever read this book, incredibly eloquent. Some of the world's best poetry ever written in this book pierces to the heart, appeals to every human emotion. I mean, it's all there. He's brilliant with his lips. And yet he says, my lips are unclean. You know, it's, it's like legs to a sprinter or fingers for a guitarist or a surgeon, the brain for an academic or the biceps for, you know, a CrossFit trainer. If you lose it, you lose you. Okay, and that's what's going on with Isaiah. The, the greatest asset, the thing that was once in his mind, even only moments before, his greatest asset, all of a sudden, when he gets a glimpse of the differential between him and his maker, his greatest asset actually gets put in the category of a liability. And, you know, he comes up with something later on in his in his prophecy, where, where he says, even our most righteous acts, even the greatest things about us, even the most beautiful things about us, even the most gorgeous things about us are like filthy rags before God. It's like the great theologian John Gerstner once said, we, we, we need not only repent of our sins, we also need to repent of our damnable good works, those good things about us that we depend upon to make us okay with God, with other people, with ourselves. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, right? His foundations are shaking, shaken. The thing that he's leaned on the most is now all of a sudden not enough to make him okay. And you don't have to be <clears throat> religious to get this, right? When, when you're in the presence of, of a superlative person, when you're, you're in the presence of, of somebody who is great. You know, I once thought I was a good basketball player. Actually, in high school, I won a lot of awards and did really well uh, until my first day of college basketball, which was also my last day of college basketball, because I, I was in the presence on the college court of, of, of a greatness that I had not known until that time and realized I, I repent in dust and ashes. I, I think I'm going to go try to become an intramural superstar because this is not going to work out for me. I thought I was a really good preacher until I shared a pulpit with Tim Keller for five years. I thought I was a really good husband and father until I met my friend Bob Bradshaw, who serves uh, our whole church, all of our congregations as executive director. He's also an amazing father and husband. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's your music. You know, you came to Nashville and you're thinking, you know, I'm going to give it a go as an artist. And then uh, you find yourself in, in a, in, you know, in a, in, a, in a restaurant one night and, 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 and they start the karaoke. And even the karaoke in Nashville is so amazing. You're like, there's no way I'm going to make it in this town. Or you pride yourself on your good looks and then you see Beyonce performing and you realize, maybe I'm not so good-looking after all. You think you, you pride yourself on your generosity, and then you hear stories like C.S. Lewis, who, who gave away 90% of his income and lived a simple life. 
And you think, wow, I'm not nearly as generous as I thought I was. And it goes on and on. But here's the thing about superlative people. They're incredibly inspiring on the one hand and incredibly intimidating on the other. If we feel intimidated by superlative people, why is it that we don't ever feel intimidated by God? Who is holy, holy, holy. Who, who could take the planet Earth in, in, between his fingertips and, and, and squash it like we would a, you know, a, a, a fruit fly? That's how massive and ominous God is. You know, every time in the Bible people encounter God, it, it, it seems to, to, to hit them. The initial experience seems to include him hitting them like a wrecking ball. So there's a, a man named Manoah, for instance, in the book of Judges, kind of tucked away in there. It's a really short, just handful of verses. <clears throat> but it's, it, it, it outlines an experience that him and his wife had of just getting a brief glimpse of the holiness of God. And after they got a brief glimpse of the holiness of God, Manoah leans over to his wife and he says, we need to prepare to die because we've seen the Lord. Or Job, who, like Isaiah, was uh, also during his time the most devout person in the world. God said about Job, he fears God and he shuns evil. He's the most devout person in the world. And yet, when he gets a glimpse of God, Job's immediate response was, my eyes have seen you, and I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Or Peter, who's an apostle, preached the great sermons in the book of Acts, so many converts as a result of his preaching. He, he wrote two letters that, that made it into our New Testament that guide us as followers of Christ even a couple of thousand years later, after he witnessed Jesus just teaching some stuff to a crowd. He looks at Jesus after that and he says, please, just, just go away from me. I, I'm a sinful man. David, King David of Israel, uh, wrote half of the Psalms Jesus refers to him as the man after God's own heart. And so, David, in the eighth Psalm, says this, when I consider the heavens, when I consider everything you've made, when I consider how great and powerful and mighty you are, God, I have to ask, what is man that you should desire him? Who am I that you, that you would pay attention to me? See, a true encounter, one of the things that's going to happen in a true encounter with God is your self-esteem is going to be wrecked. And that's a good thing. God does not intend for you or I to have self-esteem. You know, thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. God couldn't give a crap about your virtue. It does not credential you with him at all. And if, if it's the thing that you present to him to validate yourself, it actually disqualifies you. The only offering that God will accept from you and from me is our humility and our need. 
That's got to be the starting point, and that's what happens. But, but it, le- it doesn't lead to self-loathing. I'll get to that in a minute. But it does lead to this dynamic where we, we become more and more shy about ourselves and more and more boastful about Him. You know, Isaiah telling this story, is, the point of this story isn't for Isaiah to tell his story. The point of this story is for Isaiah to talk about God through the vehicle of, of his own story. But the foundations are shaken in a true encounter, but then also there's a healing touch that, that comes right behind it. You know, this defeated prophet, he prepares to die, and then an angel, a beautiful, gorgeous angel, comes to him with a hot coal uh, from the altar, and he touches Isaiah's mouth. Isn't this beautiful? When God heals us, he goes straight to the deepest source of shame. And he says, we're going to start right there, and I'm going to re- reverse every neg- negative verdict that you're carrying around with you right now. I'm going to undo every bit of self-loathing that you're feeling right now because of this encounter that you've had with me. It's, it's a bit paradoxical, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm on the one hand smashing your pride. Uh, I'm, I'm humbling you out of your pride, but I'm also lifting you out of your self-loathing. I'm touching you with this coal not to scald you, not to burn you, but to heal you and to refine you. You know, here where it says that, that the train of God's robe filled the temple, another word for, or another translation for this word train is hem. You know, like you, you, you hem the bottom of, of your pants. The hem, that's the, the edge uh, of the robe of God. Where else in the Bible do we read about a hem? It is in Luke chapter 8 where we see a woman who has been bleeding for years. Maybe she's a hemophiliac. Maybe her menstrual cycle is all messed up and they don't have the medicines to help with that. And it says that she has spent her entire life savings going from one doctor to the next doctor to the next doctor to the next doctor to no avail. And for years and years and years and years, she's still bearing this illness. And, and, and what she does is she, is she, you know, she throws a Hail Mary pass and, and you know, dives, you know, just, just runs into the crowds where Jesus is. And she, she's frantic. She tries to find him. She does find him. And she reaches out to touch him and barely gets a touch of what it says is the hem or the train of Jesus' garment. And from that moment forward, she's healed. That's all it takes. It's just one little touch. In the same way that it was all it took was just one little touch for Isaiah, for him to be healed. Which leads to this new healthy human dynamic in Isaiah. He all of a sudden becomes less guarded and more open with his own confession. His defenses go down. I'm a man of unclean lips. This is one of the remarkable things, at least to me, in the Bible. The greatest saints, the the most devout men and women, are so open about their own fallenness. And they're specific about it, too. They're not just, don't just generally say, yeah, I'm a sinner. 
No. Isaiah says, my lips are dirty. Jonah, the book of Jonah, you ever read that book, those four chapters? I mean, if any book made a, makes a person look really bad in Jonah, it's Jonah. He's bratty, entitled, judgmental, resentful, bitter, self-righteous to the core, mean as a snake. Who wrote the book of Jonah? Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. When David writes the 51st Psalm, which is his prayer of confession after committing adultery and murder, he prefaces it. When David went in to be with Bathsheba, who was Bathsheba? The wife of his best friend. David abuses his own power as king. And it says that he, he saw her and he took her. There, there, there's an implication of force there. There's an implication of non-consent there. And he outs himself. And says, I am, I am one dirty disaster. I am in this one pile of filth. And have mercy on me, O God, according to your failing love, according to my... <clears throat> you know, according to your great compassions, bl blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sins, you know, let, let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice, and so on. And then, amazing gift. How does God touch David's lips? He gives him Bathsheba as his wife. Can you imagine the process of forgiving that this woman must have had to go through with a man who had killed her husband and exploited her. And then God gives them a son together. His name is Solomon, whose name means peace, shalom, flourishing. What? Or Paul, Romans 7, talks about his coveting, his ongoing battle with coveting. In 1 Timothy 1, he talks about how he'd been a blasphemer and a persecutor and aggressor. I think we can learn a lot from the Japanese culture in terms of, of how to receive a gift like this. And when Japanese, when, when you give a gift to, to a, a Japanese native, do you know what they say? I'm sorry. We say thank you. They say, I'm sorry. That gesture is, is to say really, I, I just, I don't deserve this. That, that's really, it's just a humble gesture. I'm not entitled to this. I don't deserve this, which makes it a true gift and a glorious gift. I'm sorry. And that, that's actually what confession is. Lord, I'm sorry. And it, it, what we're, we're giving up something. We're giving up our pride to confess, but we're also receiving something. We're receiving every bit of grace that God has for us. I'm sorry. Here, let me heal you. And then there's this healing touch, right, where, you know, Isaiah does a little bit of a pendulum shift, okay, so God mercifully confronts him for his pride and his unclean lips and so on, and then he starts to self-loathe, you know, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm unclean. He uses all these, these terms to describe his feelings of shame. And a couple years ago, the Wednesday before Easter, I was having dinner with my wife on Wednesday night at Green Hills Grill. 
still remember it, out on the patio, and I started undressing somebody with my tongue, with just my wife, gossip. And my wife reaches over across the table, grabs my hand, and says, you know, you shouldn't have said any of that to me. And, and all of a sudden, I'm getting this feeling of undoneness, like, oh my word, here I am, a preacher, a man of unclean lips, and Easter is right around the corner. Should I go into vinyl repair? I mean, vinyl is coming back. It's making a comeback. But should I even be doing this? Do, do, and I asked her, I said, do you think I'm a fraud? Like, like how could I do that? Because I preach against gossip all the time. Like, if I have one, like, like moral command in the Bible that, that I'm pretty forceful with in my preaching, it's, it's gossip. Like, call it pornography of the mouth, you know, it's just another way to objectify somebody, to dress them down, to, to strip them naked uh, in front of other people, to get off on them and never make a single commitment to them. All at their expense. Gossip, pornography, same thing. Same thing. And I'm sitting here doing it with my wife. Unclean lips, corrupt lips. And I said, do you think I'm a fraud? And she says, what you need to do now is start preaching to yourself the same thing that you preach to us. And I'm like, oh, pray tell, what is that? She said, it's what Jack Miller once said, cheer up because you're worse than you think you are. And God's love is infinitely greater through Jesus Christ than you ever dared to hope. Cole, touching your lips right now. The gospel will humble you out of your self-righteousness. It will lift you out of your self-loathing. God cannot and will not abide either one with his children. He will not abide with your pride. He will not abide with self-loathing either. He's fierce. He's tender. He's lion. He's lamb. He's all of the above. All of his attributes are there to heal every bit of dysfunction on every side of the pendulum in you and in me. How? with the hem of his garment. Behold, in other words, look at this. Your sin is forgiven. Your guilt is atoned for. If you fear me, God is saying, you will never have to be afraid of me. How cool is that? Turns out, the only offering that God deems worthy is our need. You bring your history, you bring your regrets, you, you bring the things you wish you could go back in time and reverse. You bring all that to him, and he brings the healing touch. I, I love the lyric from Michael Card's song about Jubilee, uh, that, and especially the line where he, where he says, you know, to be so completely guilty <clears throat> and given over to despair, and then to look into your judge's face and to see a Savior there. That's what this is about. You know, the, the, effect of here, the effect of all of this is for Isaiah to bellow out, here am I. You know, he, he transitions from woe to wonder. Does it ever confuse you why Christians are so ambivalent about the generosity of God? Does it ever strike you how bored we get with this reality? It strikes me how ambivalent I can get. I, did, I stick my nose in this stuff every single day of my life, and, and somehow I can get pretty ho-hum about it. I don't know what that's about. 
Maybe I need more of that hem. But where it takes Isaiah is this place of eager surrender. Whom shall I send, the Lord says. Who will go for us? And he says, here am I. Send me. Me. He does this before he's given the job description. He's, what he doesn't know at this time is that he's volunteering for a lifetime of professional suicide. You know, verses 9 and following, God then lays out the job description after Isaiah commits. For the rest of your life, you're going to preach the gospel to people who won't listen. You'll get no applause. You'll have no friends. Just people bored with your message, cynical about your God, hostile toward you. You'll be despised and rejected. People will esteem you not. Go preach to a sanctuary. Go preach to a cemetery. You're going to get the same exact response. That's going to be the rest of your life. Does he walk it back? Does Isaiah say, whoa, I didn't know what I was getting into? No. He says, all right, saddle up. Isaiah was a failure to his peers. But was he a failure? Nope. Here we are, thousands of years later, Scarrett Bennett, Nashville, Tennessee, other side of the world, talking about this guy, organizing our lives around his vision, gathering together on a sunny Sunday morning before July 4th because we know that Isaiah has something to say to us still that we know that we need. This is the same Isaiah, the professional failure of his time, about whom a fellow minister in town said to me the other day, he asked me, what are you guys preaching through this summer? I said, we're preaching through Isaiah. He says, oh, Isaiah, so addictive, so addictive. Like, Isaiah is quoted a ton more than any, any other Old Testament book in the New Testament. Handel's Messiah is built upon Isaiah's prophecy. All over the world ever since, Nobody's naming their sons after King Uzziah, the prosperous king, but everybody's naming their sons after Isaiah. Was he a failure? Don't think so. Are you a failure in your quiet faithfulness and your quiet yeses that you say, your quiet costly yeses that you say to God every single day? No. No telling what impact those quiet costly yeses are going to have 7,000 years from now. Who knows? or even right now with that person who's watching and you don't even realize they're watching. Last thing I'll say is that Jesus Christ is all over this. Jesus was also regarded as a professional failure. He had no home, no money, executed by the Roman state in his early 30s, and here we are, thousands of years later, organizing our lives around him. He was a dishonored prophet also. He came to his own, the Bible tells us, and his own did not receive him. He was treated as unclean. When he was on the cross, it says that there was an earthquake. The foundations and the thresholds of everything were shaking. When he was breathing his last on the cross, woes were pronounced over him. He he had no woes to pronounce over himself because he was perfect tempted in every way, yet without sin or corruption. But he had woes 
mischaracterizing was pronounced over him all over the place by different people. Why? So that our guilt, our sin, would be atoned for. And so that we would get this benediction pronounced over us, which he would write about in chapter 62. As a, as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so the Lord your God rejoices over you. Look, your self-esteem, gotta go. Your self-loathing, this is what you put in the place of your self-loathing. He loves you as much as a husband loves his wife going into the bedroom on the wedding night. That's how much he loves you. That's how much passion he has for you. That's how much he longs for you. He's also the king who died. You know, Uzziah's death marked the end of Israel's prosperity and flourishing. Jesus' death marks the beginning of our prosperity and flourishing in, in, in the sense of what truly makes us prosperous and truly makes us flourish. And he's also the prophet and king who is also our priest who, guess what, is going to touch our lips in just a few minutes in order to heal us at this table in front of us with some bread and with some wine from the altar. What a good God. What a great God.